I'm uh, thrilled to be preaching again. Didn't, don't ever expect it. I never, I, as a matter of fact, this time when we came down, I purposely did not tell pastor or any of the elders I was coming because I don't want anyone to think that I expect uh, to have this opportunity, but I do uh, appreciate the opportunity very much, and I always enjoy preaching. It's my favorite thing to do, and so I'm thrilled to be here this morning. To be frank, though, I'm just thankful I'm here at the right time this morning. Uh, now, for the record, I think what you all do here is a great idea. It's a huge help when you've got a long way to go and you've got, you know, as many little kids as I do. It's a, it's a huge help, but I assume that this nifty little practice has been going on long before cell phones were a thing. Because here's my difficulty. My watch is smart. My phone is smart. And so all of my alarms are also smart. And these devices change time without me. You know, so the whole, we don't change our clocks until after the PM service, uh, that's completely out of my hands. I can't stop any of these clocks from changing. So, so the wall clocks say one thing, and the smart clocks that, that I operate my life by say another thing. And I'm using calculus trying to figure out what time to set my alarms for in the morning so that I can get to church uh, and I can leave the house on time. And I just submit to the elders this morning, for the sake of the younger generation, and I mean like 40 and younger, it, uh, maybe it would be easier if we just said, you know, for one week, church is going to be at noon, you know? <laughs> Here's some amens in the corner back there. I don't know, that might make it harder for somebody else, but I was praying this morning, I said, Lord, I know and believe that you held the sun and the moon in place for Joshua for a whole day, and Lord, I know and believe that you turned the sundial back by 10 degrees for Hezekiah, and Lord, I just ask that you get me to church on time this morning. And he did, so praise the Lord for that. Isn't it good to be in church? You just can't have this much fun anywhere else. You really can't. Uh, there is a handout to go along with the message this morning. Uh, I got in the habit of doing that. I got in the habit of doing slides. I'm a very visual preacher, visual aid preacher, because I have a large deaf group at my church back home. And so they said, you know, Pastor, the slides really help us a lot. The handouts really help us a lot. And so if you don't have a handout this morning, would you just slip your hand up? We've got an usher in the back ready to go with those. And those will help you because not only is it fill in the blank so that you can follow along with the main points, but also all of the scripture and all of the cross references I use are on that handout so that for me, when I'm sitting under another preacher, I get my mind wanders a little bit and then he says a passage and I forget what he said uh, and, and try to find it. So that is, should be a help to you and I encourage you to grab one of those. Anybody else that needs one? All right. My daughter right here, always, just to justify me saying, does anybody need a handout? She forgets every morning. So, all right. Those that were here a few months ago might recall the message that I preached entitled, Know Him. It was uh, the key verses for which were in Philippians chapter 3. I have to get back into the habit of clicking myself. Philippians chapter 3. Verses 10 through 15 were the, the key verses for that. It says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. This morning's message will follow that same theme. This was a message that was born out of my daily Bible reading. Uh, depending on what I'm doing at the time, sometimes I'll read uh, the Old Testament, large portions of it at a time, and this was born out of that. And I just encourage you sometime, uh, you just don't realize how interconnected the Scriptures are until you start just reading and reading and reading the Bible. As a matter of fact, there's a really great visual aid that I didn't put into the presentation, but if you would ever search online Bible cross-references chart or visual aid, you'll see this picture where some pastors took all of the cross-references that you've got maybe in your margins or whatever and mapped them all out, and it's just a web all connected from Genesis to Revelation, and it's really incredible. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. It constantly references itself. And I discovered that here uh, in my Bible reading in the book of uh, 2 Kings. I happen to be in a passage that we don't often refer to. It's not the text from any Sunday school lessons or, or sermons, I'd expect. It's a bit of a history lesson, as you will see. Uh, but through the beauty of Scripture and the miraculous and remarkable consistency of your Bible, this history lesson will culminate in the person of Jesus Christ. Throughout the reign of the kings of Saul, David, and, and Solomon, the nation of Israel was united as one nation. That's probably something you already know. Solomon's son, however, was foolish. And his foolish treatment of the people tore the kingdom in half. So from then on, you had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah that existed in opposition to one another. The northern kings were wicked and apostate. They led Israel further and further and further into idolatry. Omri, the father of Ahab, made Samaria the capital of the northern kingdom. And the 19th and final king of the northern kingdom of Israel was Hashiah, and he was under tribute of the king of Assyria. So he paid dues to the king so that they would uh, let them be. But he was caught attempting to ally himself with Egypt, and he was imprisoned by the king of Assyria, and the people were carried away captive. And if you read 2 Kings chapter 17, it kind of reads like a court document. God is stating the sins of the people, the crimes of the people, the covenant that had been broken, the attempts that he made to restore them back to himself, and their ruin was the sentence that was uh, declared upon them as he had promised so long ago. So after the Assyrians took the Israelites away, took them captive, what they would do is they would replace them with foreigners from other countries. And so your Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 17 that the king of Assyria, he took people from other conquered cities like Babylon and he replaced the inhabitants of Samaria 
the, the Jews with these foreigners. This was a common practice in the day. Patriotism was not a problem when everyone was far away from home. Fortunately, politicians don't do this anymore. The kings that conquered would often replace the inhabitants of the nations and cities that they conquered with other cities so they did not have to worry about patriotism. Now, these new inhabitants of Samaria faced problems of their own. Foreigners in Samaria, in the land, they're in that northern kingdom, and they're facing problems of their own. You can follow along in your Bible. It's also in your notes. 2 Kings chapter 17, we'll read verses 24 through 29. We'll skip a little and keep going from there. But look what it says in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24. With all that history in the back of your mind, it says, And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and from Cutha, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and Sepharim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them because they know not the manner of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests whom ye brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let them teach the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Howbeit every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. We're going to skip the next two verses so I don't have to pronounce every god and every city. But it says in verse 32, So they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord, verse 33, and served their own gods, after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. Unto this day they do after the former manners. They fear not the Lord, neither do they do, or do they after their statutes, or after their ordinances, or after the law and commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, Ye shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a stretched out arm, him shall ye fear, and him shall ye worship, and to him shall ye do sacrifice, and the statutes, and the ordinances, and the law, and the commandment which he wrote for you, ye shall observe to do forevermore." And ye shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, ye shall not forget, neither shall ye fear other gods. But the Lord your God ye shall fear. And he shall deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Howbeit, they did not hearken, but they did after their former manner. So these nations fear the Lord and serve their graven images, both their children and their children's children. As did their fathers, so do they unto this day. Fast forward now about 750 years. With all of that history in mind, John 4 comes to life. So turn to John chapter 4. It's also in your notes. John chapter 4. 
you'll recognize this. John chapter 4, verse 1, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through where? Same place. Okay. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Verse 11, the woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence, then, hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast now is not thy husband, in that saidst thou truly. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye, ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to women worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak to thee am he. There's a question I'd like for you to lodge in the back of your mind this morning. Do you suppose yourself to be a Samaritan or a saint? Do you suppose yourself to be a Samaritan or a saint? Jesus told the woman of Samaria, he said, you worship, you know not what. There are people populating our churches today who know not what they worship. They're spiritual Samaritans. Rewind back to 2 Kings. It's just like what it says there. They fear the Lord and serve their own gods. The true, genuine worshipers of God know what they worship. For saints, they 
worship him in spirit and in truth, according to Jesus Christ. So consider this morning the descriptions of a Samaritan and a saint, and I wonder which one describes us best. First of all, Samaritans are oblivious in worship. They're oblivious in their worship. There's four markers of the oblivious worship of the Samaritan from these passages. First of all, notice this, they worship God based on their location. Samaritans worship God based on their location because he is to them the God of a location and not the Lord of all creation. The pagans in the day when in 2 Kings chapter 17, you saw they believed that deities were localized. They said, listen, we don't know how to serve the God of this land, this land. They thought deities were localized. All the cities and all of the nations had their own gods that they worshiped. They assumed that they, the local God needed to be worshiped by them because they were in his territory. Fast forward 750 years to the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well, and you still find that the woman at the well argued over which location God was to be worshipped in. Should it be here in Samaria at Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worshipped, or at Mount Moriah, where the temple was located? Which mountain do I worship God in? She was arguing over location. Scores of people have traveled to a location today because they believe that's where God is. But they're Samaritans. They don't know what they worship. God is not com- confined to this church building. He's not confined to the old church building. He's not confined to the church building that you attended before. He's not the God of a location. He's the Lord of all creation. And we act many times as Christians as if God is only here. And we change our behavior and we change our habits and we change our lifestyles and our priorities based on where we are. And we act like it's this mountain or that mountain that God must be worshipped in. But as Christians, we understand that they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He's not the God of a location. He's God no matter where you are. David even said, if I make my bed in hell, he's there. He's not the God of a location. He's everywhere present. Samaritans believe him to be a God of a location, and they worship him based on that. They also worship God by addition. They worship God by addition. Samaria became pagan and pluralistic. And what I mean by that is that Jehovah was one of the many gods that they worshiped. I got real excited in Aaron's class today from Zephaniah. They feared the Lord and... What do you mean, and? They worship God by addition. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and shalt swear by his name. Jesus, when he was being tempted in the wilderness of the devil, he rebuked the devil and said, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. They worshiped God and, they feared God and, they worshiped him by addition. And there's many in our churches today that have merely added God into their life and do not truly serve him. 
It concerns me very much as a preacher when people claim to be Christians, but they show zero evidence of the transforming power of the Spirit within them. They're just the same as they've always been, even though they've been in church for years and years and years and years. There's been no growth. There's been no change. They remain in the sins that they've been warned personally and lovingly about. They're selfish and they're unfeeling. They're not kind. They're not caring. They cling to their habits. They live worldly lives. They consume worldly entertainment. And listen, I don't expect every pressing Christian to be just as sanctified as everyone else. I understand that all of us are in a different part of that spiritual journey, but I do expect, according to my understanding of the scriptures, that every Christian should show evidence of the spirit that's within and be in the process of being transformed into Christ's image. A stagnant Christian may very well be nothing more than a Samaritan. Because if they truly knew him, they'd be like him. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, the very worst sort of people are those who have long been professing Christians, but who are destitute of grace and are Christians in name only because they are still dead. Sadly, people like that are among our deacons and church members, and we cannot get them out As long as they remain within our body, they exert a most destructive, poisonous influence. It is dreadful to have dead members where every single part of the body should be moved with divine life. Yet in many cases, that is how it is. Samaritans are lifeless because they know not whom they worship. They're like what they worship. It reminded me of Psalm 135 which says in verse 15 through 18, the idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. They're lifeless, they're dead. Those that worship God that that worship God by addition, fit God into their schedules, but they know nothing of surrendering to His will. They can't be bothered to stay for afternoon services. They might not even make it to communion or, heaven forbid, gather for a special meeting or a weekday meeting or something like that. During a needy time in our church ministry, we had a very old building. It was 40,000 square feet. It's huge, 1,200-seat auditorium, and on a good day, we got 100 people in there. So you can imagine how that felt. People spread out here. Imagine 1,200 seats with just 100 people in the, in the place. And so God led us to sell that property and get out from under that albatross of a building. There was just nothing we could do to keep it up. And during that time, we were in all of the process of that. And, and I, like Pastor Hovey is doing now, I was preaching on faith and I was encouraging people to, to step forward in faith on this whole thing. And during that time, I had an older member suggest, a, a well-meaning member, but this older member suggested that we start holding old-fashioned cottage prayer meetings to pray for the needs of the church, as they did in the old days. Pastor, you know, back in the old days, we did this and God used it. And I had to remind that person that we have prayer meeting at the same time every single week. And if people in the church really wanted to gather for prayer, they would be at that meeting. And if that meeting filled up, I would happily add more meetings. Samaritans carve out a portion of their week 
a portion of their paycheck, a portion for the Lord, so that they can fear Him, but serve themselves too. And get real defensive if you suggest they do more. Should something more interesting come along, they might miss church altogether and comfort themselves that, well, I've been faithful enough, as if God has a quota on faithfulness. Samaritans worship God by addition, by location, for convenience. They worship God for convenience. Think back on 2 Kings 17, the account of that. Why did the people send back to Assyria to get a priest to come teach them about the Lord? They were motivated by their situation, not by their souls. Things are going rough here. There's trouble here. There's lions in the streets. And we need somebody to come and tell us how we can appease this God and make our lives better. They worshiped him for convenience. They were motivated by their situation, not by their souls. As a matter of fact, if you study your Bible, you'll find that the original heresy of the northern kingdom was done in the name of convenience. The temple was just too far away. The king said, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he made a counterfeit temple and a counterfeit form of worship in the name of convenience. You know, there are many today who are Christians because of convenience. It was convenient, or it is convenient. A well-meaning pastor or parent put pressure on you to profess Christ and be baptized, and you did because it was convenient to do so. There's community here. There's joy here. There's friends here. There's good activities here. There might be business opportunities here. There's charity to take advantage of here. You find the style and the atmosphere favorable here, but you worship God because it's convenient. And your worship is not genuine. And let me tell you, when the convenience dissolves, so will you. Jesus said in Mark 4, verse 19, in the parable of the sower and the seed, He said, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. Life gets inconvenient, and the word is choked. Samaritans come and go based on convenience, for if they had been of us, they would, not have, uh, they would have no doubt continued with us, but they went out just as soon as it was convenient for them to do so. Can I say there's so many, I was impressed last week, there are so many young people here. It amazes me, I'm thrilled about that. Can I just give a, young, a word to the young men and women in this church? Many of you have been in church all your life. Your father and mother, if they have loved you enough and raised you right, gave you no other option but to be in church every week. And your parents have done their best one way or another to give you every opportunity to know Christ yourself and to serve him yourself. But there is coming a day sooner than you think that the influence that your parents have over you will be limited. And in that day, we will all discover if you worship God because you truly know Him and love Him and submit to His Spirit, or if you've just been worshiping Him because it was convenient to do so. Your parents gave you little choice. 
people see what I am today, and uh, they make a lot of assumptions, which I don't fault them for, but I am not what many of you might assume me to be. I was born and raised in a Christian home. We were faithful to church. My parents were involved. At the age of 11, my parents were divorced. We had to leave the church that I'd grown up in. My dad and my brothers and I bounced around churches for several years, different kinds of churches, all sorts. I was in public school all my life. I had no convictions about which Bible to use. I used just about every single one of them until I went to college. I remember when the church changed versions and starting using the NIV. I had no strong convictions on the music that I listened to or enjoyed. As a matter of fact, I was in the church when they went contemporary, and I played in the praise band on the keyboard, and I loved it. I was by no means a conservative Baptist. How in the world does somebody like that become the man you see preaching here today? From an early age, even though I was in public school all my life, my father taught me personal responsibility. He ingrained in me that my choices were my own and that I should not give much weight to what my peers think of me and not care what people uh, say about me, give little attention to what everyone else is doing and just do what I uh, believed would be right. He told me this once and I've never forgotten it. He said, you need to determine personally to discover from the Bible who God is and how he expects you to worship him. And as a result, by God's leading, by God's grace, I am a first-generation fundamental Baptist preacher. <laughs> I, I did not grow up this way. But I thank, my, I thank God my children are. And it sickens me to see so many of my peers despising and, and resenting the upbringing that I wish I would have had. I longed to go to a Christian school. I wanted to have Bible every single day. And these peers of mine are running towards the life that God has drawn me out of. And if you've been homeschooled and in church all your life, can I tell you from experience, you haven't missed anything. Nothing. All that you are missing out on is heartache and regret and baggage. You have a head start on the rest of us. You weren't held back. Don't let the devil tell you that you've been held back or hindered. You've been prepared to serve God personally. You, had a, you have to determine yourself to step out into the war zone of the world and stand tall, thanking God for the way you were raised and giving him the rest of your life. So what if you had little choice up until the point you were 18 years old? When you get to that point, you can make the choice and thank God you don't have to worry about what happened back there and whether or not somebody's going to bring it up two years into the time that you're pastor. You don't have to worry about that. God has spared you from that. And you need to worship God not based on convenience, but personally. Samaritans worship him by convenience and by addition and by location. They also worship him in ignorance. They knew very little truth at all, and they did not wholly cling to the truth that was given them. These, these foreigners in Samaria, they had a priest come and teach them, and if they had really desired to serve the Lord, they would have thrown out all the other idols too. They feared the Lord, but they did not know him. Had they known him, they would have known him to be the one and only true God. It scares me how few Christians 
really know the God they claim to worship. Most Christians in our country can't even give you the gospel. They can't tell you how the Bible tells us we can know for sure that we'll be in heaven when we die. They know not whom they worship. And I'll be the first to say that much of the blame lies in the pulpits, which in America have long since turned away from the truth and have turned into fables. And their children are just as oblivious, just like the children of the Samaritans. Notice it says back there in 2 Kings 17, not only them, but their children and their grandchildren after them unto this day. And you that claim to worship the Lord but have no knowledge of Him to pass to your children, how can you expect them to know Him at all? Your children will know what the world teaches them. And your grandchildren will be Samaritan pagans, just as those were back in the book of 2 Kings. You claim to be a Christian, and you might very well be. But it troubles me to see Christian families just as shipwrecked and just as tattered as those in the world. For though you claim God yourself, your family knows very little of the ways of God, and that ignorance has been costly. Just as it was for the woman at the well, she was on her sixth partner. Think about Lot. Abraham had no idea that there was going to be fewer than ten righteous. He thought surely Lot's family was righteous. And he stopped praying at ten, not knowing there was just one. 750 years later, the woman at the well still did not know God until she met him face to face and met personally the object of true worship. We're fast forwarding to John chapter 4 now. Jesus saith unto her in verse 21. He said, Women, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. There's four aspects of the genuine worship of the saints. Notice, first of all, the emphasis on a relationship. The emphasis on a relationship. The Jews and the Samaritans did not understand the concept of a heavenly father. A father. They did not understand that it wasn't a location. It wasn't a religion. It's a personal relationship. He's a father that we can run to that we can spend time with, that we can grow with. He is a loving, heavenly Father. And Jesus said that the Father seeketh such to worship Him. It's the emphasis on a relationship that all of us should have. There's emptiness in the ritual. The woman was concerned with tradition. She was concerned with location. The Samaritans had their own temple, but it was destroyed about a hundred years before this conversation happened at the woman at the well. What's interesting is Jesus said, you're not going to worship in this mountain. You're not going to worship in that mountain. Forty years later, that temple would be destroyed, and neither one of those mountains would have a temple to God on it. Ritual is empty. God is a spirit, Jesus says. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. The Jews made the following of a religion 
part of every aspect of their life, but they did not know what true worship was. Jesus said, if you had known the Father, they did not know the Father. Find the word worship in the New Testament and you'll discover something interesting. It always describes the act of an individual and not a church service. But we talk about worship as if it only happens here. Listen, Christians assemble on Sunday as we're commanded to do. But true worshipers, to true believers, worship every single day of the week. We assemble on Sunday, but Christians worship every single day of the week. And we describe worship as if it's all outward, as if it's all activities. But worship, true worship, is actually inward and spiritual. And if you're here this morning just to keep up appearances or just to carry on a tradition, you're a Samaritan, not a saint. We're here on Sundays because we've been commanded to do so, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Kind of tickles me a little bit how many Christians are posting about Revelation. The more we see it, the more we gather. We're commanded to be here, but we worship every single day of the week. There's emptiness in a ritual because the emphasis is on a relationship. And I don't want to leave you without this. Notice the eagerness of a righteous God. The Father, Jesus says, talking to the woman at the well, who was on her sixth partner, five ruined marriages, probably coming at the time of day that she was coming, so she didn't have to associate with anybody else, tells this woman at the well, they that worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth, for God, He seeketh such to worship Him. God seeks people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. God desires you. God desires you. I'm pretty sure that everyone in this room does not have the past that that woman did. God desires you. He seeks genuine worship from you. Psalm 8 says, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? You guys even have a song you sing about that in Texas. The stars at night. I'm not going to start. I don't want anybody to clap. <laughs> right? You look up at night and you see the stars. The further out in the country you get with the less light pollution and all that, the, the more stars you see. And what is man? that thou art mindful of him, and the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. I'll tell you what man is. I'll tell you what we all are. Every one of us is born a sinner. There is no one righteous. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And according to the Bible, the penalty for that sin is death. This includes, that death includes a terrible eternity in a real place called hell. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. And as sinners, we can't become righteous on our own. Everything we do is tainted by that sin. We're all as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Mr. Petty Sr., rest his soul, no matter how much time I spent in Texas, he would always call me a Yankee. There's nothing I can do to change that. I was born a Yankee. I'll always be a Yankee. We're born sinners. We'll always be sinners. I don't think I did myself a service with that illustration. 
But the fact of the matter is this, there's nothing we can do about that sin. I can't act really great, I'm still a sinner. So God sent Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin for you because he loves you. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Jesus died in your place. He was buried, and three days later, he rose from the grave and ascended to sit on the right hand of his Father in heaven, and he paid your penalty, your sin. He paid for it with his life. And if you'll accept his payment for your sin, God will in turn give you the free gift of eternal life. The wages of sin is death, and it goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you can receive that gift yourself by calling on Christ in faith. Whosoever, the Bible says, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you trust in Jesus alone to save you, he will save you from sin. He will save you from the penalty of death in hell. And I love the promise he gave. He said, he that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out, not since Jesus Died on that cross, has anyone ever been turned away from salvation? Not once. He never turns anyone away. There's an eagerness of God. He desires you. And if he has saved you, he still desires your genuine, daily, ongoing worship today. And I love how this culminates in John 4 with the expression of our redemption. The the Samaritans believed in the Messiah. They knew about the Messiah. And she said, well, you know, I I appreciate your opinion, but when Messiah gets here, he's going to set everything straight. Jesus said, I that speak unto you am he. The expression of our redemption. He presented himself to the woman at the well. He gave her the living water she actually needed. He's the divine expression of our redemption. 2 Timothy 1 says this, it says of Jesus, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in uh, Christ Jesus before the world began, but now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Titus 3 also says, But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His spirit, or His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Are you a, a Samaritan or a saint? God desires real, genuine, personal worship from you. When he confronted the woman at the well, he said, you know not what you worship. He also confronted others in Luke chapter 6. This stuck out to me also while I was preparing this message. Jesus said, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And he went in to tell a parable which we, we love in Sunday school about the wise man and the foolishness man which built their house. And both those men, Jesus said, Come to me, hear my words, 
And the difference between the wise man whose house stood tall in the face of the storms and the foolish man whose house was utterly destroyed by life was one thing. They both came, they both heard, but the wise man did. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Samaritans are oblivious in their worship because they worship God based on location. They fit him in. They worship him based on addition. They worship him for convenience. They worship him in ignorance. But for saints, we understand that true worship is an emphasis on a relationship. That there's emptiness in ritual. Tradition is wonderful. I have many traditions that I enjoy, but it's only wonderful when you realize what it's portraying. There's emptiness in a ritual apart from that relationship. There's the eagerness of a righteous God that He desires me, and He calls me to worship Him. And the expression of our redemption is Jesus Christ. Do you know whom you worship? Even if you've been attending for years, why are you a Christian? Why? Is it a relationship? Is there evidence? It sure makes verses like this make more sense when the Bible says, Wherefore, the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Well, I should be able to look back in my life and see victories and changes that God has made in me. Yes. Yes, you should. Why are you a Christian? Is there evidence? How is your relationship with the Savior? Maybe you've been living like a Samaritan. Boy, that scares me to see that verse where it says, they fear the Lord and. We don't have idols that we carve out today. Pretty rare in this country, in this culture. We worship other things, you know, other things. Maybe you've been living like a Samaritan. You should know whom you worship. He should empower you every day. Your life wholly and totally dependent on Him. As the Bible says, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of of God. It's a relationship, not a religion. I'm going to ask pastor to, to come and close this for us.